you can't build a system in private. You can't isolate it from review and attack and hope that it will survive once it becomes strong enough because it doesn't become strong enough. You have to do the exact opposite. Expose it to everything, the, the harshest review, the, the strongest criticism, the, the worst hackers. And then when they come to you and find bugs, you give them a big old bounty and say thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Karim Baruki. I'm here with Adam Levy, and we're both very excited because we have a very special interview today here with us, Andreas Antonopoulos, maybe one of the biggest names in this space. Andreas, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Karim. Thank you for inviting me on the show. It's lovely to meet you both. <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, you know, of course, most basically all of our listeners are going to be very familiar with you. A lot of them got into this space because of you, but nobody's going to do a better introduction of yourself. So, you know, in a quick minute or so, how did you get into this space? What attracted you to it? And, you know, how you define yourself as far as this space is concerned? Uh, sure. I'm a computer scientist by training. So I have a degree in computer science and my master's specialization was in distributed systems and data communications in the early internet. From the very beginning of my career, I've been interested in security and cryptography um, very, very early. In fact, from when I was about 15 years old, I started reading about cryptography and I was fascinated by it. And then in 2012, somewhat late to the party, I stumbled upon Bitcoin, found out about it and dropped everything else I was doing and decided to focus my career entirely on this. And my area of focus is education. So I try to teach people about what this stuff is, how it works, why it matters, the kind of philosophy and principles behind it, and do that with as much reach as possible. That's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Adam Levy here. And so basically you found it. And then you were like, you just, you were like, this is it. And all of your kind of everything you'd learned over the years from when you were young just kind of came into play. And then you just kind of, it was like, a, not a gold rush, but it was time. Yeah. Well, you see, the thing is, I actually read about Bitcoin once before sometime in 2011. I don't know exactly when. And it was related to some gambling site and I dismissed <laughs> it because I didn't understand what it was. And then the second time I read about it in, in 2012, um, there was a link to the article to the white paper. And so I was a bit curious. So I clicked through and I started reading the Bitcoin white paper and nine pages blew my mind, dropped everything. Like it literally <laughs> just derailed my entire life. You know, uh, one of the things we were discussing when we were preparing for this interview with you, Andreas, is basically we wanted to ask you, it's pretty clear that because of when you got involved and, you know, the fact that you started talking so early on, you were very well positioned during the ICO craze to have taken advantage, make a bunch of money if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty clear that this space has special meaning for you and that you have a different type of vision that allowed you to pass up on that kind of temptation. We're wondering if you could tell us like what you see, what is your vision for this space? What is it that makes you so passionate about this that you could dedicate your life to it and at the same time turn away such incredible financial opportunities? Uh, to me, this is very much about justice. It's about building systems that enable people around the world who don't have choices, who don't have opportunities 
Um, people who grew up in countries where there is corruption, very much informed by my childhood of growing up in Greece, to have choices that their governments are either unwilling or unable to give them. And I see this as a very powerful technology for social change. And I come at, at it from a political perspective. So it was never really about money for me. Money is a means to something else. It's about individual empowerment. It's about choice. It's about freedom. And all of those things appealed to me. You know, when you say the ICO craze, the funny thing is that which one? Because, <laughs> you know, there was one in 2014 too. Yeah, um, the recent one in 2017 was the second one. I think we're going into the third one now. And, you know, I'm used to being in a space where there is this gold rush mentality. I started my career on internet technologies, started being involved in the internet in 1989. And by 95, when I finished my degree, we were in full dot-com mania. <laughs> and so I experienced that with other technologies too. Do you all you had to do was say dot com and internet in ninety-five and people were like, take my money and the <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I've I've never really been interested in that. And also I thought that from my perspective, to be a successful teacher in this space, I had to be neutral. And that meant I had to gradually build trust and make sure that people understood that I would not promote or endorse or push for projects for personal gain. And I specifically avoid, I don't talk about people, I don't talk about projects, I don't talk about companies, and I don't talk about investments. I focus on the technology and its social impact. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes I'll mention a project because I enjoy using it. And invariably, they'll disappoint me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I never I never tell people to go invest in X, Y, or Z. Because I think the moment I do that, I break, you know, a fairly sacred trust that people have that my goal is is to really give them knowledge, not to gain from it. Yeah, and it does allow you to keep an element of neutrality that I don't think a lot of people in the space have. I have another question. Since you did bring up growing up in Greece, we got very lucky. The reason we got this interview with you in part was uh, our editor, who's Greek, uh, reached out to your team. And one of the things that he that I guess we wanted to ask is, from his perspective, even though he uses Bitcoin because we uh, transact with him using Bitcoin, he feels like it's almost non-existent in Greece. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we wanted to ask is in this space, in our bubble, it feels like this rapid expansion. But wh where do you think we are compared to maybe where you thought we would have been if you if you rewind the clock five or six years? Is this actually spreading? Do you see uh, some hard limitations? How, how far along the curve are we? I think in many ways, in terms of the technology, we're moving faster than I expected, and the pace of change is much more aggressive than I expected. In terms of the social acceptance, I think I had really a feeling that it would take a long time to to see change in people's attitudes. Um, and, and that's because money is a fairly fundamental technology. It's thousands of years old. Uh, people are pretty set in their ways. And, and it's really funny because I I have presentations that I do in, in Greece and I come across this attitude all the time where people are like, well, who's going to build the roads? Like, have you seen the roads? Because <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem to be a particular interest or priority for our government. <laughs> and so the the idea that in a country where people 
in many cases, don't pay their taxes, where there's massive inequality and corruption, there's simultaneously an instinctive statism, an instinctive attitude that our solutions come from the state, and without the state to solve these problems, they cannot be solved. Which, you know, that kind of aversion to, to private enterprise and free markets is one of the reasons I left Greece, because I started my first business when I was 14 years old in Greece. And it was a process of banging my head in an invisible wall nonstop for years until eventually I tried elsewhere and it was just so much easier. Hmm. Do you mind telling us what that business was? Well, the uh, the very first business I, I started, well, the very first work I did was private lessons. I was teaching uh, kids cryptography, sorry, not cryptography, programming. But my first actual business was a pirate radio station in Greece uh, when <laughs> nice. I was 15 that we awesome. built from scrap electronics that we um, scavenged from various bits and pieces and hand-built um, a radio station to play music. And that was a real business. I mean, we actually had people who we paid to do programming and we, we made some money from advertising. And then I gradually migrated to starting a a bulletin board system that became one of Greece's first TCPIP service providers, uh, first proto ISP, if you like. And it, through every process there, it was just impossible to move forward. Everybody wanted a piece. The corruption was ridiculous and nobody took it seriously. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, having grown up in Colombia, I came to the States uh, when I was like 10 or 11 years old or something like that. But it's um, I definitely got some of that experience of you see what dysfunctional government looks like or you see what like extreme uh, sometimes inability for things to just flow smoothly, either because right. it's just the rules are not in place for all the players to just focus on playing a good game, so to speak. Right. It's kind of. The U.S. kind of gets some, it, or at least for me, I've never lived anywhere else, but then I hear about all this corruption everywhere else. And it's like the U.S. may seem almost like like way better than those other countries. I 100% agree. I will say that I've seen the U.S. decline since I've been here, sadly. I think we're yeah. getting a little more um, like some of these other places. Uh, but Andres, you, you hit on another interesting point that relates to one of the other questions we wanted to ask you. You mentioned how there's a reliance on state solutions or whatever, right? So mm -hmm. one of the things we've covered a lot in the podcast has been this rise of China through the perspective of blockchain. And now recently, it seems like they've announced this kind of government weight being thrown behind the technology. And we're going to mm -hmm. see the development of this authoritarian regime putting all of its weight behind blockchain technology. And then this like fragmented what's going on in the West we wanted to ask about how you see this playing out in the future. Like, I mean, won't some of these public blockchains be at a disadvantage with all of the kind of investment and development that's going to come from these centralized regimes? And just interesting, hypothetical, how do you see this playing out? Well, that's that's something that I've been asked even from the very beginning of working in this space was, well, what happens when, when Google, Facebook, and Apple get into the game? Or what happens if the U.S. government builds FedCoin? And the answer isn't very different when China does it either. Of course, we're, they're going to try. But instinctively, what they're going to do, and what we see happening again and again, is they miss the point. The point is not the blockchain itself as a term, has has led to a lot of misunderstanding. And the term blockchain is used to, to cover a lot of things that, that are very different in nature. 
I prefer to use the term open public blockchains to refer to the ragtag, non-centralized mess that we're building across multiple <laughs> chains, which represents freedom. And the reason it represents freedom is because the primary driver is decentralization of power. And through that decentralization of power, you get certain characteristics. And I, I've discussed these many times, but the bottom line is you get a system that is open to access um, where you can both access and engage, but also build upon it without permission. So it's permissionless. It doesn't respect or even identify borders, geographic or political borders. So it's borderless. Um, it's neutral towards the source, destination, content, and value of transactions. So neutral. It resists censorship. It's immutable in its operation. It's publicly verifiable. And all of these characteristics make these things open public blockchains. And none of these characteristics exist in the centralized systems. They cannot exist. The moment you have one identifiable party or entity that's in control, whether it's a private corporation that's under a specific legal jurisdiction, or it's a government that wants to control this thing, they basically strip away all of these things until what they're left with is a data structure that is a blockchain, but is as pointless as can be. So if you, I, I use another metaphor here, which is if you, if you look at the early development of the automobile from the perspective of someone who makes horse carriages, you're like, yes, definitely. Pneumatic tires, that's the thing. And you're like, but so what we'll do is we'll take pneumatic tires, this great new innovation, and we'll add it to our existing built out controlled infrastructure of horse carriages and we'll, we'll have horses pull carriages with pneumatic tires <laughs> like no you're missing the point the invention here isn't pneumatic tires pneumatic tires are only there so that the internal combustion engine can make this thing go faster over rough roads that's why you need pneumatic tires no no but pneumatic tires brilliant fantastic <laughs> let's put horses in front and blockchain as a technology it's a data structure. It's it's a necessary but insufficient component towards a decentralized system. It's, in fact, the least interesting part of the invention uh, because it's just a data structure. It was possible long before. The really interesting, it's the pneumatic tire of, of this technology. The really interesting technology, the thing that is the internal combustion engine, if you like, is the decentralized proof of work consensus algorithm that allows you to decide that no one can write to that blockchain and take control of it, but instead that power is decentralized. That is the invention. That is the critical component that creates decentralization. Nobody's even found a way to do it otherwise yet. So that fundamental misunderstanding keeps happening in our industry and will keep happening. I'm not worried about it. They can go and build horse carriages with pneumatic tires and, <laughs> you know, and they can make glorious presentations where, yes, of course, it, it improves the ride. You know, it's it makes horse carriages better, but it's still not a car. right? And it doesn't affect what we're going to do building cars. Right. It doesn't affect. And Andreas, just to clarify, when you say that the real invention there is the proof of work algorithm, you're using that as a stand-in just for the catalyst for decentralization, right? Are you also supportive of like proof of stake protocols if they're able to achieve the same thing? If they're able to achieve the same thing, absolutely, yeah. One of the questions that still remains is whether they are able to achieve the same thing. You know, most people don't 
realize that proof of stake existed before proof of work. In fact, proof of work was used because proof of stake was considered less effective at delivering decentralization. And um, so it, the breakthrough was was moving the uh, the approach from proof of stake or proof of authority and federated signing to proof of work as a better way of doing consensus. That was the breakthrough. Um, now people are going back and they're trying to find ways to retrofit proof of stake and other mechanisms of consensus uh, and maintain decentralization. Of course, on paper, you can say these systems can do it. But there's a vast difference between proving something on a paper and then throwing it into production in an adversarial system with massive amounts of money, no pun intended, at stake, and <laughs> and people attacking it all the time. You know, the reason proof of work is interesting is because it has survived concerted attacks for 10 years without breaking. And until another – and at a value of almost $100 billion – of actual protected value. So until you have a proof of stake system that can protect that much value and demonstrate resistance to attacks and demonstrate resistance to re-centralization, then that's all theoretical. I would love to see other mechanisms built. In fact, I think that the best chance proof of stake has is if it uses proof of work as an immutability as a service anchor, meaning that Proof of stake can get away with doing things in a much more light way if it anchors checkpoints into a proof of work mechanism such as Bitcoin's blockchain in order to buy immutability for itself so that it doesn't have to build immutability from scratch. Hmm. And it is interesting how many projects we've seen that have included in their development some type of anchor to the Bitcoin blockchain because it's a way of leveraging existing computing power that's already, uh, you know, we we did a story here on the show just a couple of weeks ago about how cumulatively Bitcoin is actually the largest computer network ever created. It's the largest amount of computing power ever directed at any one task, which is kind of Nuts. amazing when you think about it. Yeah, and it's expensive. Uh, immutability is expensive. But the qualitative aspect of the immutability you get from this kind of industrial scale proof of work cannot be replicated, in my opinion. The, the fact that you do have to burn all of this energy and that provides essentially a backstop to reorganizations of the chain that is incredibly expensive to um, attack. That gives you a level of immutability you simply can't do with, with proof of stake. And that means, in the end, we might only be able to afford one global immutable proof of work network, and everything else just anchors into that because it's too expensive to build two. That's one thing. The other thing is, and this is even more of a historical fluke, but very important, is Bitcoin's bootstrapping from a virgin birth to a point where it could no longer be attacked. Nobody gets that honeymoon period anymore. That honeymoon period is unique to Bitcoin because everybody thought it wouldn't work for three years and didn't pay any attention to it. Three, four years of a honeymoon when no one was actively attacking it. Now, if you try to bootstrap any kind of proof-of-work system, even proof-of-stake system, it's very difficult to do that without it getting attacked. Yeah, you have to be ready to go and ready to just fade all these attacks right from the start. And that's, gonna, that's such a uh, tall task. 
you might even just have to do a whole um, diversion distraction technique where you're like, okay, we're going to build a completely bullshit chain and run proof of work on it. Oh, nobody pays any attention to it because they think it has no value. And then three years later, like, we were serious. This isn't a bullshit chain after all. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. And we also see a lot of protected development, right? A lot of these, even a lot of the blockchains that claim that they will be eventually public, there's not really even the illusion that the development is going to go through a public process. It's like a protected X number of years under this control where we can let it into the wild and then try to let it go free. Right. And and that security model is fundamentally backwards. I did a talk about this called Bubble Boy and the Sewer Rat, <laughs> which is <laughs> one of my favorite titles uh, as a talk. But it's basically about the different security mentalities. Uh, Bubble Boy is the security mentality where you have a system that's weak and vulnerable. And what you do is you hide it from the world based on the story of this kid who was immunosuppressed right. and had to live inside a, a plastic bubble. And by comparison, the security model of Bitcoin is that of a sewer rat. You don't protect it from exposure. In fact, it's already exposed to everything you can imagine and has just developed this incredibly strong immune system through constant exposure to threat. If you take Bubble Boy and you suddenly break the bubble, your system dies. It's as simple as that because it has no immunity against anything. You can't build a system in private. You can't isolate it from review and attack and hope that it will survive once it becomes strong enough because it doesn't become strong enough. You have to do the exact opposite. Expose it to everything, the, the harshest review, the, the strongest criticism, the, the worst hackers. And then when they come to you and find bugs, you give them a big old bounty and say thank you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the things you mentioned that we wanted to talk about, you hinted at this, as far as the future of the cryptocurrency space, we see two different trends, right? There's, of course, the, the dominance and resiliency of Bitcoin, while at the same time, the story of the space seems to be one of fragmentation. We mm -hmm. get more and more fragmented. So if you were speculating 20 years in the future, are we looking at a couple of homogenous worldwide coins that are the equivalent of, the, of like the dollar and the euro? Or are we looking at a very, very, very fragmented space all over the world with all kinds of like, how do you see that currency scenario playing out? I think the answer is both. And the shape it takes, which is already, it already has emerged as this shape, is a power law distribution or Pareto distribution. Um, which is something that emerges in many natural systems where you have a situation where the early advantage accumulates um, rapidly. So if you look at distributions of wealth in society, if you look at density of cities, if you look at the number of authors who publish books, or you look at music artists who are popular, a power law distribution is also known as the 80-20 rule, where 20% of the top most popular authors earn 80% of the revenue in the space, print 80% of the copies that are published. 20% of the music artists make 80% of the most successful music and their music represents 80% of the revenue of the industry, et cetera. And it doesn't have to be 80-20. A, a parallel distribution can have different shapes. But, but the essence is you have three, two, one, two, three, five top dominant systems. And then you have a long tail, as it's known. And the long tail represents tens of thousands of tiny, perhaps insignificant, but still there systems vying for attention. 
that's the shape that emerged early on. That's the shape I predicted would remain. Once you have a shape like that emerge, it's very difficult um, to shift the 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 big players at the top of it, unless you have a massive change in the underlying dynamics of the market. And um, so you will have two or three, perhaps dominant chains that will, and and this goes to two or three monies and two or three smart contracts platforms, and it, every part of the industry will will create this power law distribution, and those two or three will represent, you know, some majority of the activity of the number of transactions, the number of users, number of developers, market cap, measure it any way you want, you'll still get the same basic distribution. Yeah. Now, one of those systems may be very dominant. You might have a very skewed distribution where you have one system that has 80% of the market. It's fairly difficult to do that, especially in a in a marketplace where switching costs are low and there's enough flexibility and things are moving very fast. There's no barriers. There's no monopolistic situations. It's more likely you're going to end up with one system that's in the 40, 50% of dominance, uh, two or three systems that take up the other 30%, and then a massive long tail that fills in the rest of the of the distribution. We're kind of not that far from that right now. Yeah, that, that's basically where it's settled. So the idea that this is going to reconverge into one system that's going to surpass 80% of dominance, I think is unlikely. Even if you think that monetary considerations dominate the conversation, which I don't think they do, I think that's unlikely to happen. So we're going to live in a multi-coin, multi-chain world. There might be some integration layers above that that allow us to very quickly and easily swap between different coins and chains. And that will even encourage more competition in the space. Yeah, I got to tell you, even though this is speculative, this is a take that makes a lot of sense to me because it's consistent with both the patterns that we're seeing right now. And I think it's consistent with the reality of currencies that we see in the world right now, right? I mean, the dollar is essentially ubiquitous. That doesn't mean it's completely dominant. That doesn't mean that there aren't other currencies. It's not impossible to remove, but it's also very, it would be very, very difficult to remove. Of course, real currencies have political realities that we don't know yet. Yep. <laughs> if how are they going to interact with the cryptocurrency world? And uh, one more question about the future of Bitcoin. Um, my other co-host that wasn't able to make it and I have had a lot of debates about the deflationary nature of Bitcoin. And even though we both see a place for Bitcoin, one of the conversations we've had is, is it possible for a currency that's deflationary to ever not be volatile in a world with expanding economies, right? So my question to you, Andreas, is could Bitcoin ever really function as a currency when it has a limited supply? Won't it always have the volatility of an asset like gold? Well, I mean, I think the the volatility of an asset like gold would be wonderful. And if we headed in that direction. <laughs> and, and, and again, the volatility of an asset like gold priced in what? Well, that's because, true. It's because that's that's the thing. If you if you price gold in dollars, are you looking at the volatility of gold, or are you looking at the volatility of dollars, or both? If you look at um, the value of gold in consumables, um, and the same thing goes for silver too, and you look at how much a liter of olive oil cost in Roman terms, we do know the pricing in 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 gold coins. In Roman times, how much did a liter of olive oil cost? How much did a kilo of meat or whatever? And if you translate the measures and you adjust for 
more industrialized production and, and changes in the economies of scale of the commodities, turns out gold hasn't really changed its purchasing power almost at all. Huh. And so the volatility you see is actually a reflection of the volatility of the dollar. So if you measure it in dollars, then yeah, the price goes up and down in dollars, but what's moving? This is a classic problem you have in the difference between the units of account function, the store value function, and the medium of exchange function. So if, if, you, if you use as a unit of account the US dollar, which is uncapped, and you use as a store of value something that is deflationary in nature, and then you try to measure them vis-a-vis each other, you can't control the variables. You end up, you know, what are you measuring? You're measuring their relative movement to each other. There's no fixed point here. So absolute versus relative measurements is a really big problem in this space. Ultimately, and you'll see this in traditional economics, people talk about purchasing power as the primary measure of value, not, um, and they relate it back to commodities that are relatively standardized and have not changed much. If you do that, you either end up in a commodity that doesn't change at all, like gold, or you measure it against human consumables that satisfy basic needs. The Economist magazine, for example, has the Big Mac Index, where they measure the purchasing power of world currencies, not based on the exchange rate, but based on how much it costs to buy a Big Mac in that country and in that currency, just because that provides a fairly standardized unit of measurement in terms of production costs. So again, where will Bitcoin end up? Um, I think volatility is primarily a function of size and the economic activity that happens. If Bitcoin represents a very large economy that has daily activity by very, very in very large amounts, uh, large volumes, large liquidity, what happens then is it's much harder to move its value around. You know, it develops inertia effectively. You've got to think of it as the economic activity is almost like a giant ship displacing hundreds of thousands of tons of water. And if a little wave hits it, it doesn't budge because it has inertia. Right now, Bitcoin is like a little Zodiac inflatable bouncing up and down on the waves because it doesn't have much displacement. If it has displacement, and that means real economic activity, and people are making more long-term planning decisions based on its value, the volatility automatically goes down. So one of the funny things is that what that means is volatility is a degree of size. And then you create this funny situation where I get asked all the time by journalists, when will Bitcoin's volatility be low enough so that it can grow in adoption? Can Bitcoin ever be big if it has volatility? If you then say, well, volatility is really a reflection of size, then that question becomes... Can Bitcoin become big when it's big or will it forever be small because it's small? Right. It's circular logic, right? Volatility is simply a declaration of size. When it's big, it will be big and therefore not volatile. And as long as it's small, it will remain small and it will be volatile. And if you look at how volatility has evolved over time, as the deflationary effect gets stronger because we go through halvings and we're coming up for another one, volatility goes down. And that is not because that correlation is causation. It's because simply the economy at the same time has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And more and more people are investing and planning and deciding based on this economic factor. So it will get smaller. The volatility will get smaller. It is absolutely possible for a deflationary 
commodity like Bitcoin to have low volatility and very large size. So then one one last question on this is I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. And I'm going to give you an extreme example, but it's just so I'm able to understand that. Let's say that we, you know, push the clock forward 20 years. We've already gone to a point of almost all of the Bitcoins are in circulation. There's not going to be that many. Now we have population and economic growth inherent, independent of Bitcoin. Let's just say that literally economic activity increases by 100% or population growth. Therefore, the way I'm envisioning it, the demand for Bitcoin would increase, but there are not enough Bitcoin in circulation. So like the increased demand for Bitcoin, if it's 100% increased demand, would mean a significant increase in anything that's denominated in Bitcoin. Like how would prices and labor and all these things keep up if the economy keeps growing but the base can't keep up because it's a fixed asset, which is part of the beauty. I'm just trying, yeah, you know what I mean? Drop. I mean, the, this is precisely what's happened. We already see that in a number of industries. So it's important to understand that deflationary characteristics occur in two different contexts that we see every day. And when you look at Keynesian economics and the analysis of deflationary economies, they primarily look at deflation in the context of fiat currency that can be printed indefinitely. So the only reason you would have deflation in an economy like that, where you can increase the supply indefinitely, is a a catastrophic collapse in demand. So when you see the deflationary decade of Japan as a classic example of deflationary economics, what you're studying is not a limited supply. You're studying a collapse in demand in the face of unlimited supply. And no matter how much they print, the demand has collapsed so dramatically, catastrophically, in fact, that it leads to continuous deflation and a deflationary spiral. Then you have deflation that is based on the fundamentals of some kind of technology. And we see that in the cost of a laptop, a smartphone, uh, basic electronics. That economy has been deflationary now for 40 years. And what it means is the laptop that you bought this year will cost half as much two years from now. So you either upgrade it and get double the processing capacity, or you hold it and you can buy it for for less and less and less and less money every two years. That's a deflationary Mm. economy. And that's a deflationary economy that is healthy, that actually has massively increasing demand. And in that particular case, the economics of that in terms of If you think of supply as Moore's law, it's capped, right? It will only increase by a certain percentage each year. It seems very fast, but in fact, compared to the demand, it's not. What happens is people's purchasing power increases. So things cost less and less, and uh, whatever money you have stored or saved becomes more valuable over time, which then generates a dividend. So your savings effectively are increasing in value And they become almost like an endowment or a trust fund where you can live off the interest without touching the capital, right? (laughs) That's fascinating. So what that means is you park a Bitcoin today and today that Bitcoin buys you a a nice family car, a a cheap family car. (laughs) And, you know, you don't touch it. And then 10 years from now, it it buys you a medium-sized house. But what you could do is you could take one-tenth of it or one-hundredth of it and buy a nice family car and still have 90% of it left or 99% of it left, which then increases in value so that you can, next time you take out a thousandth of it, 
and you have 99.9% left. And so basically it's producing through deflation purchasing power for you. Yeah. See, and this this actually makes a lot of sense because you would think that that should be the natural progression. As society becomes more efficient, as it's easier for us to produce value, then the same amount of resource should be able to acquire more, right? Like, I mean, yeah. And I, I'm actually experiencing that since 2012. So at the time in 2012, I would spend 25 Bitcoin to buy a bag of coffee beans, a one pound bag of coffee beans. And I look back and I think, oh my God, that's horrifying. But (laughs) (laughs) somebody had to do it. (laughs) Right. But if I kept a few and, you know, I sold my car, in fact, in 2015 for Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin that I did keep would buy 10 cars of that, of that, you know, a used car, or not a particularly fancy one. We're not talking Lambos here. We're talking a Mini Cooper, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Like a five-year-old Mini Cooper. So we're talking about a car that's worth about 7000 maybe six, $7,000. I sold it for that, got it in Bitcoin. And today with that amount of Bitcoin, I could, I could get 10 cars of that size. So hmm. if I held it, now I could take one-tenth of that amount, buy a car, sell it again for Bitcoin after three years, Hold. Do you see what I mean? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of it, course. It, I, it, it creates this endowment situation where suddenly you start thinking very carefully about savings and about building a sustainable model that can last perhaps for the next generation. And as I'm doing that, keep in mind I'm also earning in Bitcoin and other crypto. And while I'm earning, when the price goes down, I earn more crypto. So my purchasing power has dropped a tiny bit because the price in fiat has gone down. But if I was earning $1,000 before and that was an eighth of a Bitcoin and it drops to $4,000 a Bitcoin, now I'm going to get twice as much Bitcoin for my $1,000 invoice. As long as your (laughs) income is denominated in fiat, correct? Which of course it is because Bitcoin is a shit unit of account and we need to just (laughs) accept that and move on. We're not going to just like there's an element of pragmatism here. Unit of account is the last the absolute last milestone in terms of monetary growth and development. And we won't get there until volatility is very low. And and, and just to clarify, you're talking about using it as Satoshis in SATs. I'm talking about pricing in terms of Bitcoin directly. So I don't price in terms of Bitcoin. I price my services. Well, one of the reasons I don't is because I have to do all of my accounting (laughs) in in US dollars for for taxes and for running the business. But when I pay my employees, their salary is in US dollars. I might pay them in Bitcoin, but how much they get paid per hour is in dollars. How much I get paid for my work is in dollars. When I sell something on, you know, I sell a t-shirt that says, not your keys, not your coins on my store. It's (laughs) it's $20. It's not priced in Bitcoin. You, You can only pay in crypto. Uh, you can't actually pay in dollars, but the pricing is all in dollars. That's unit of account. And that's yes. the last milestone. You get it only with very, very stable long-term currencies where for everyone, the pricing becomes internalized. You can think in terms of that unit of account and assign value to things. You can actually play almost as if you could make a game show called The Price is Right and and have people competing on their internalized value 
for that unit of account, right? Now, when we have the price of right, is right played in Satoshis, that's when you know we've we've arrived yeah, because everybody has <laughs> an internal representation, a price catalog of relative value in their head. Mm-hmm. And the unit they use on that price catalog is Satoshis. That's what it means to be a unit of account. Absolutely, Andreas. And since you are talking about unit of account, we're getting closer here to the end of the hour with you. So we're going to try to squeeze in two quick questions. One of them is about Tether. So full disclosure, we've been very critical uh, on the podcast of Tether from the beginning. It seems essentially like open fraud. And those aren't your words. Those are our words. Uh, Just the ability to have a printing press, essentially. Uh, So Without just specifically just the concept of a stable coin, because we understand why the space has been trying to get stable coins. But do you have any thoughts specifically on what what appears to be this massive fraud in the space that just keeps getting away with it? Like, and it keeps getting used almost ubiquitously? So I don't have enough information about what's happening in tether or any of the other stable coins and i think it's it's dangerous to use words like fraud when you don't have sufficient information to say that what i will say is that there's a fundamental risk with stable coins that are asset backed or fiat backed or commodity backed or backed by anything that is not on chain itself and that is the fundamental problem of custody you have third party right. custody which creates counterparty risk the counterparty risk there is that you need to have a way of continuously and successfully auditing of the holdings but in order to do that you have to be able to do a full balance sheet it's not enough to say look here i have bank accounts that have a billion us dollars yeah. or had it at one point <laughs> or it, but even just now i have yeah. b- bank accounts that have a billion dollars of currency in them vis-a-vis the the whatever stable coin I'm backing with that. Because the problem is you can't see in that kind of accounting, you can't see the corresponding liabilities. It's like, yes, I have a billion dollars in the bank, but at the same time, I've taken out three uh, leveraged loans on that billion dollars that I'm not telling you about, which means that that billion dollars that's in the bank is actually spoken for. It's leaned right. against some other liability. In order to do a full audit of these kinds of things, you actually need a complete balance sheet, right? Liabilities versus assets of the entire picture of holdings of the entity that holds it. And and you need to keep that up to date to avoid all of the incentives. Keep in mind, one of the problems that happens with these systems, as well as with Ponzi's in general, is that nobody starts out thinking, I'm going to do a Ponzi. It's very rare. That's how it starts out. How it starts out is I really want to do something honest and truthful. And then you you suffer a loss because of a theft, because of whatever. And instead of admitting to that loss and writing down your inventory, you try to cover it up from current earnings. Um, and then it escalates and keeps escalating until eventually it's all gone. That's how even the original Ponzi, that's how it happened. Yeah. You have traders covering losses. You have, And so this is the risk with anything, whether it's uh, dollars or it's gold or it's any other commodity. The only stable coins that I think are really interesting to explore, which don't have that much counterparty, they have different types of counterparty risk, but they don't have that much counterparty risk, are decentralized stable coins based on crypto collateralization, over collateralization. Right which means today that's mostly MakerDAO, DAI, but there are a few others emerging. And that has other massive risks. So 
hey, you know, these are interesting experiments. I don't think any of these are systemic risks to uh, crypto as a whole. Well, that's definitely good to hear. And, you know, just to be clear, we do agree with you about how these things play out. Like in the case of, tele- well, what we always said is we just think it's impossible to give somebody a printing press and for them not to abuse it eventually because the situation will present itself, you know? So the, the whole point behind Bitcoin is that nobody has the printing press because somebody would have used that power, right? Right. Or that's yeah. a way to interpret it. Um and the, this one, it comes from one of the listeners. I thought it was a great question for somebody like yourself because you've been in this space so long. We always emphasize to people the importance of doing the research, being aware of scams. So the last question that I want you to address for our audience, Andreas, is what do you think are the best sources for truthful, honest information in this space? What are Whether they're publications or individuals, or is there any type of sourcing that you rely on and trust that our audience can use in their own you know, research and learning in this space? No, that's the fundamental problem that Bitcoin solves, which is <laughs> to not have authorities, but instead to run software that allows you to do independent verification and auditing without appeal to authority. Um, that is the fundamental. And, and I don't know where to find the truth about most of the things because the only truth that I can be somewhat confident in is if I've properly set up my Bitcoin node, I can verify whether a transaction has actually happened and what the state of the blockchain is. But we're, we're living in a, in a society where people have, have figured out how to um, throw enough uh, garbage into the public communication sphere as to create a situation with, where no source is trusted, there is no truth, everything is opinion, there are no facts. It's the death of epistemology. It's, it's the death of facts and truth. And, and that's done deliberately by people who want to create misinformation campaigns and disinformation campaigns. And it's one of the big problems we have in our society is discerning truth. I certainly won't do that by appeal to authority, by saying, listen to this person, they've been truthful. Because all I can say is, listen to this person, they've been truthful so far. <laughs> right. And uh, as far as I can tell, and that's only useful for a few weeks before suddenly they decide now's the time to cash in. And the, the problem is the more appeal to authority you do, the more you enable the authority that you appeal to to play the long con and really cash out, right? Because you're building <laughs> up their reputation. Do your own research is an empty phrase uh, because most people don't have the technical uh, <laughs> understanding to do their own research. That's right. It's fair. I think the most important thing is pay attention to the red flags. That's the the (laughs) rule that I live by. It's a very difficult thing because as human beings, we want to trust, we want to believe, uh, and we're taught by society to be polite and not not create waves. And and when we see red flags and when our subconscious, when our gut tells us this thing doesn't smell right, to ignore it and rationalize it and play along and be nice. Um, and that's very dangerous. It's dangerous when you feel that the person who's approaching you on the street looks a bit dodgy and you're like, come on, that's just silly thinking. And then you get stabbed or yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous when you look at a potential deal and it seems too good to be true, but you really want it to be true. So you ignore the red flags. 
So your body has a very finely tuned four and a half million year old mechanism for identifying risk, and it's entirely subconscious. And what you can do in many of these cases is carefully work to develop a skill of listening to those symptoms when you feel that odd feeling, when you feel this weird, you can't explain it aversion, when that person seems dodgy, but you can't really express why, or an idea seems dodgy, listen to that red flag. And that's the best I can say. Now, there are some logical heuristic rules that go there, the simple rule of thumb. If this thing promises 10% compounded returns every week with no possibility of losses, (laughs) okay. Secret trading algorithm. (laughs) That's not a red flag. That's a parade in the in the Kremlin Red Square <laughs> yeah, yeah. of hundreds of thousands of red flags waving in secret. Right? Yeah. Runaway. If if someone tells you that they will take your money and then give you more money back, if someone tells you invest in this, it's a it's a sure deal. If someone tells you this can only win. If someone tells you they know what's going to happen next, all of these, I mean, they're just giant red flags that should be obvious. But once you learn how to do those things, then we go into the subtle. And and it's a constant struggle. I have to deal with it in my daily relationships with other people and try to decide, okay, do I have a good feeling about this person and develop that judge of character, really? Yeah. At the end of the day, life is not easy and we're still going to have yeah. to use our instincts to navigate these waters. Trust so- is a human behavior. And no matter how much you encode it in software, there's still the fact that there are people involved. And as long as there are people, you still have to engage in the in the human rituals of trust. Yeah. Well, Andreas, I got to tell you, we really want to thank you from both the host and I know it's been a treat for our audience. Thank you for your time. And you. uh, yeah, this has been a really awesome interview and we look forward to having you again and seeing you again. Is there any anything you're working on or coming out with that you'd like to share with the audience? Um, there are just all kinds of things. Uh, just launched a, a little shop where I'm trying to spread dank memes printed on t-shirts and other products. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not about a retail product. It's about me experimenting with lightning nodes and things like that. But also it's about getting specific conversation starters on, uh, products that people can wear and, and put out the important memes like not your keys, not your coins. And you can buy just a fraction of a Bitcoin. And, you know, that's not a blockchain. That's a series of unfortunate engineering decisions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, there's a new book. It's coming out just before the holidays, The Internet of Money, Volume 3, which is my third iteration, a collection nice. of another, another 11, 12 talks that we're putting together to supplement Volumes 1 and 2 that have been very popular. And I'm working on my third O'Reilly book, Mastering the Lightning Network, which is due out at the end of next year. Awesome. And for those of you that are more technically oriented, I know, Andreas, you also do a bunch of Q&As on YouTube if anybody uh, wants to check those out. So. Yeah, my Patreon group gets a monthly live Q&A where they get to ask the questions and then I publish all of the answers. Awesome. Fantastic, Andreas. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And this has been the Crypto Basic Podcast. 